Japanese cherries and uh, red buds, I guess. They are rocking and rolling out there right now. Weren't they beautiful when you drove over? Did you get to see some of those things? The dogwoods are out, too, in force. But I'm, I'm afraid the crepe myrtles are still a sound asleep. They will, it'll be a while before they're coming around. But it's a very, very beautiful spring. Those things happen this time of the year. Uh, tomorrow evening, of course, is the Passover and then the night to be much observed. I don't know if you're aware, but the, uh, the night of the night to be much observed, about 3 in the morning, there's going to be a full lunar eclipse. I don't know if I'll stay up to see that, but uh, be very interesting. Understand it's very unusual. There's going to be four in the next two years. Beautiful, beautiful time here in Charlotte. You may have heard this joke before, but that was a little girl. She was in school, and her teacher was teaching them about whales. And she asked the teacher, she said, well, can a whale swallow a man? Can that happen? And the teacher said, uh, no, no, a whale can't swallow a man. They eat small fish and small um, things in the ocean. Their throats aren't very large. Whales, a whale would never swallow a man. The little girl said, well, in Sunday school, they showed me in the Bible where it said Jonah was swallowed by a whale. And the teacher, being a nice atheist and always willing to attack the faith of a child, said, No, that, that didn't happen. The Bible is full of such myths. That's an ancient myth. The Bible is full of those things. No man named Jonah was ever swallowed by a whale. So the little girl um, said, well, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah and see if it really happened. The teacher, feeling a little bit argumentative, said, um, well, what if Jonah went to hell? The little girl thought for a moment, frowned, and said, then you ask him. <laughs> now, there are a couple of things wrong with this story. A couple of things are wrong with this story. Jonah is not in either heaven or hell, of course. Jonah is in his grave awaiting resurrection, like everyone else who ever died, except our Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, we know that Jonah was not swallowed by a whale. He was swallowed by a specially prepared fish. If you will recall the account of Jonah in the Bible, to a person in the world it may seem like, you know, like a very strange ancient story, like a strange ancient myth. Uh, and here's a, here's a summary. I'm just going to run through it a couple of times. Uh, once, just as the way the people in the world think about this, if they know about it at all, and it seems to them very much like a myth. So it begins when this Israelite God named Yahweh, you know, that's the eternal to us, but I'm going to use the word Yahweh just to sort of be illustrative of the times. This Israelite God named Yahweh tells Jonah to go tell the Israelites, or rather to go tell the Ninevites who are from Assyria, to go tell them that they have to repent, that they are very evil people. If they don't repent, then Yahweh's going to destroy them. Well, Jonah doesn't want to do that because the Ninevites are the bitter enemies of the Israelites. He doesn't want to do that. So he's hoping that he's not going to tell them that God's going to go ahead and destroy them. He's got a plan. So instead of going east to Nineveh, he goes west, gets on a boat, and takes off. And there's a terrible storm, 
And the sailors on the ship that Jonah is on decide to throw Jonah overboard to quell the storm. And guess what? It works. They toss him overboard, heave, ho, and suddenly it's calm. Now, while Jonah goes down in the sea, he goes down there. It turns out there's a whale hanging around right under the boat. Sees Jonah, swallows him, and Jonah then goes down the belly of the whale, and he lives there for like three days underwater and swims back towards land. Patui spits Jonah out on the land. Now, Jonah, somewhat chastened by this experience, says, okay, okay, I'll go do it. So he walks all the way to Nineveh, this huge city, walks into the middle of this gigantic city and says, Yahweh says y'all better repent or he's going to destroy you. Now, instead of killing him like they would most Israelites, they say, well, okay. And the whole city repents in sackcloth and ashes. And then God doesn't destroy them. Jonah then is really unhappy because they did repent, and he's all angry, unhappy, and unhappy. And God then says to Jonah that he shouldn't be. That's the book of Jonah as most people in the world read it. But, you know, it does seem kind of improbable sometimes when you think about it, even if you're in the church. An Israelite guy comes to Nineveh and says, you better repent. Now, Nineveh is pagan. They are a pagan society. They hate the Israelites. They have never obeyed the Israelite God. They didn't obey him in the past. Why would they all of a sudden do that with the entire city repenting and becoming righteous? Does that seem likely to you? All that makes the account of Jonah seem unlikely and even fanciful and like a a myth to many people in the world. So why is such a story included in the Old Testament canon of the prophets? There are 12 minor prophets. None of the 12 minor prophets even sound like Jonah. Remember who they are? We've got Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, then Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And if you read them, prophets like to say things like, Thus saith the Lord. Now, when you hear somebody say, that's like in Amos 1.3. He starts off, he lets them have it. Thus saith the Lord, just like that. When you hear that, ah, we've got a prophet talking here now, so people are maybe going to listen to what he says. But it doesn't sound that way. The story, the account in Jonah is not presented that way at all. It just seems like a fanciful ancient story. But there's a reason for that. Sometimes God has a prophet act out a prophecy. Prophets sometimes act them out. There's a lot of examples of that. Some of them, uh, well, let's say in uh, Hosea, you know the story of Hosea? Israel is, God says it's like a harlot to him. So he has the prophet Hosea marry a prostitute. This is what it's like having a covenant with you guys. That's what he's telling them. Wow. Wow. That's rather extreme, isn't it? But he's literally having the prophet act it out. How about Ezekiel in chapters 4 and 5 of Ezekiel? Remember some of the things he has to do? God tells him to set up some tiles and, like, make a a little model of Jerusalem and a battlement against it, you know, like kids do. You make a little castle and you attack it. And everybody's watching the prophet. What's he doing now? He was known to be a prophet. Everybody sees that. He even had Ezekiel... 
shave his head and beard and take some of the stuff and chop it up and throw it into the fire and do various things with the hair. So this is what's going to happen to Israel if you don't obey God. So prophets sometimes have to act things out, and God has them do that, trying, trying to speak to the people to get them to listen. They don't listen to the talk. Maybe they'll listen listen to a little play if they have him act it out. Well, Jonah here is acting something out. What happened to Jonah is a prophecy. The book of Jonah is a prophecy, and it is foundational to our faith and the meaning of the day Passover. So today, let's look at the sign of Jonah, the sign of Jonah, and what it means to each of us, because it has great meaning for us all, especially in this season, as we come right up to the Passover. All, all of us must give the sign of Jonah if we are going to be in God's kingdom. I'll try to answer three questions today, three questions. The first one, why do we teach that the account of the book of Jonah actually happened? Maybe it's never seemed really realistic to you. I hope by the time I'm done today, it will seem more realistic to you. The second, why did Jesus say he would only do that, only give the sign of Jonah, excluding everything else? He did dramatic miracles all the time. He healed people with terrible diseases. It did extraordinary things. But of all the miracles he did, only that one, he said. When I do that, that will be the sign, he said, that he is, he is the Messiah. Other people in the Bible did miracles as well. I mean, Elijah raised a person. The two witnesses will be raised after three and a half days, but three days and three nights. That is the sign that he gave. Why is it so important that Jesus would give that sign to the exclusion of all others? The third point is, why did Jesus have to die? So the title of the sermon today will be The Sign of Jonah. Now the first point is, regarding the prophecy, the account of Jonah is in both Old Testament and New Testament uh, as well. It's in the Old Testament prophets, but it is of great importance to us in the New Testament as well and is referred to, is stated or referred to throughout the New Testament. No sign of Jonah, no salvation. Turn, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. Matthew chapter 12. Verses 38 through 41. <clears throat> then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said unto them, And even an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was Three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The sign of Jonah, three days and three nights. 
It's also mentioned in Matthew 16:4, um, other places as well. It says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He excluded all the other miracles that he had done. Turn to 2 Kings 14, 23 through 26. 2 Kings chapter 14, 23 through 26. Who was Jonah? Who was Jonah? Is this the only place we hear about this fellow who's swallowed by a great fish? No. Jonah was an active, recognized prophet in his day. Beginning in verse 23, in the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, I'm, let's see, is this the right one? Second Kings, sorry, here we go. There's one chapter over. Verse 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became the king of Samaria, which is the ten northern tribes, Israel, and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin. So we have, we have the time fixed here. This is in the time of the divided kingdoms and the time of the... Um, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king of Samaria. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin. So this was, let's see, verse 25. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath, the sea of Arabah according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath, Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Jeroboam actually extended, re-extended the kingdom back to some of its ancient borders at this time. And he did it based on a prophecy of who? Jonah, the son of Amittai. We're going to read about him because he has introduced the same man in the uh, first verses of the book of Jonah. Nineveh, the city, is mentioned 19 times in the Bible. It's on the east coast of the Tigris River. It's opposite modern Mosul in Iraq. For a long time, uh, some biblical critics said that there was no Nineveh because they couldn't find it. There was no trace of it, and it's not mentioned except here in the Bible or perhaps another place or two. But when they went out and dug in that particular place, they found it. Nineveh was found, this huge city, over seven miles in circumference seven miles in circumference around this city. That was the size of the wall of the city of Nineveh. Also, um, so we know that Nineveh was a real city. Now, archaeology proves that. In 2 Kings 19.36, we won't turn there, 
but it tells of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. He returned to Nineveh after his defeat by Hezekiah. Remember what Sennacherib did? He had his general go down and blaspheme the God of Israel, saying their God was powerless against him and his army. Remember what happened? He got crushed, crushed, and Sennacherib himself died shortly thereafter in Nineveh. So that was a little lesson for them right there. They knew that Yahweh of Israel was a powerful God. And then in Luke 11:32, even Jesus says that the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment of that generation to condemn it. Jonah was known and respected as an active prophet around the 15th year of Amaziah, king of Judah. So just developing the historical, the historical comment, um, context here, Jonah was a real person in history. He's not just a mythical figure, a legendary figure. He's referred to historically in 2 Kings and the other place in, uh, where it is written about, where his life was and some of the things that he did, such as being a prophet, prophesying specific things, which I would imagine the Ninevites knew about as well. If you walked around in Israel and the places where he lived, you might have seen this man, Jonah. He was a real figure in history. Now let's read some from the book of Jonah. I'm going to read a good bit here. hope it won't be too long for you, but I'd like to go through the actual story of Jonah and read some excerpts from it, beginning in Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. There he is, sane man, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down to it to go with him unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was likely to be broken. Then all the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the ware that were, in this, that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and there he lay fast asleep. I always thought it was interesting, you know, during a storm at sea, Jesus went down and went to sleep as well. Verse 6, So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest you, O sleeper? Arise and call upon your God, so that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they um, said, Every one to his fellow, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon, uh-oh, Jonah. So God identified Jonah, casting lots. God sometimes used as a means of communicating. The sign of Jonah, of course, identified Jesus as God. Verse 8. Then they said unto him, Tell us, we pray you, for what cause this evil is upon us, and what is your occupation, and where, come, where do you come from, and what is your country, and what people are you? Then he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, 
the God of heaven, which made the sea and dry land. This is verse 10 is interesting here. Okay? Look at what it says. Then were the men exceedingly afraid. And they said unto him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. He's filled them in on what happened. And they are scared to death. Why? Why? They're pagans. Each one was calling on their God. It's just an important point here. Sometimes when you're doing a Bible study and you're reading back through the histories in First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, and so forth, notice there that the people in the surrounding nations, they knew, many of them knew, that the God of Israel was powerful and mighty. They just didn't want to do what he said. That's all. They didn't like his law. They, they kind of liked, uh, you know, um, Baal and Ashtoreth. They thought maybe that religion was a lot more fun for them. But they didn't want to do what he said. But they knew he was powerful. And the Assyrians already knew it from what had happened to them before. Um, and then they said unto him, What shall we do unto you that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea is wrought or wrathful and was contemptuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Jonah was willing to give his life. He took his own guilt. He took the guilt really of those men and their lives upon himself. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land, and they could not, for the sea wrought, and uh, was tempestuous against them. And then they cried unto the Lord. Oh, boy, they're switching sides here now. They are crying unto the Lord and said, O Lord, O Yahweh, we beseech you, let us not perish for this man's life, lay not his, uh, upon us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, has done as it pleased you. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. They killed a man they thought was innocent to save their own life. That's interesting. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is something we don't know how this happened. A specially prepared fish. <laughs> when we see Jonah in the kingdom, we will ask him, okay, along, maybe along with the little girl if she's there. I hope she is. We'll ask him, what on earth was this sea creature, this fish, like there in the, that you were gone into? Chapter 2, then verses just one through four. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell or the grave, Sheol, I cried, and you heard me. And you have made uh, cast me into the deep, into the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, and all your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of your sight, like in death, yet I will look again towards your holy temple, as in resurrection. Look down in verse 6. I went down into the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was all about me forever, death. Yet you have brought up my life 
from corruption, the pit, O my Lord, resurrection. So we see the theme, the sign of Jonah, being developed and repeated here. Then in chapter 3, the word of the Lord came into Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go into Nineveh, the great city, and preach unto it, preaching that which I bid you. This time, Jonah says, I, I, sir. I don't think he wanted to go through that one again. What do you think? The Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them unto the least of them. For, for word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and with ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by his decree um, of, the, of the king and nobles, saying, Let um, neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Verse 10, um, uh, verse 9, Who will tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God re- repented or relented of the evil which he said that he would do to them, and he did it not. Okay, I think we see now what could have happened there. The king of Nineveh, he knew who Yahweh of the Israelites was. He, he just didn't mess around with him. You know, they would attack them as long as Yahweh was not active and defending them. As long as the Israelites were evil and sinning, he would do it. He could get away with it. But once he was told by a prophet of the Lord God of Israel, he, was, he wasn't going to take any further chance of dealing with a prophet of Israel or have anything happen to him such it happened to Sennacherib or others. Jonah 4, 1 through 3. And it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry, and he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray you, O Lord, was this not my saying when I was yet in the country? Therefore I fled into Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repented you of evil. Therefore now, O Lord, I beseech you, take my life from me. It is better that I should die than live. And the Lord said, Do you well to be angry? And he said that he did, even unto death. But God then told Jonah, And uh, really, we'll just read verses 9 through 11. And God said to Jonah, Do you well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even to death. And he said to the Lord, You had had pity. Then said the Lord, You had pity on the gourd for which you had not labored or madest it to grow, come up in the night and perished in the night. Should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, where in a more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much cattle. So a long story and a lot of reading, but I wanted us to go through the book of Jonah and to see several things about it. 
Jonah was an actual person in history. He was an active prophet, probably known and feared by Israel's enemies. The account of Jonah in the Bible is a prophecy, prophetic history. It is not an ancient myth that somehow got stuck into the minor prophets. The events that are described actually occurred. Many people in the surrounding pagan cultures, of course, knew about Yahweh, the Lord um, of Israel. And Jonah's warning was very credible. That's why the king of Nineveh obeyed and ordered repentance. He had good reason to do it. There's a good probability that the king of Nineveh already knew about Jonah because of his prophecies and may have even known about Jonah's adventure on the ship. That's possible as well. Word of such miracles would have gotten around even in the ancient world. So Jonah was an active prophet in history. Nineveh was an actual city in Assyria over seven miles in circumference. Its ruins exist today, and the Assyrians had good reason to fear the God of Israel. Their repentance and the fact that they did is credible. Second point, the tradition of Good Friday makes the word of God of no effect. The tradition of Good Friday makes the word of God of no effect. I've never understood why when they killed our Lord, they call it Good Friday. That's when they think they killed him, which is actually earlier than that. But Jesus had to actually be three days and three nights in the grave. Otherwise, his Messiahship, his claims to be Messiah, would be in question, as many have charged. The uh, Jews have long charged that a Friday crucifixion denies that Jesus is the Messiah. They make the same argument we do against it. They just don't want to allow, in fact, that he was in three days and three nights. Atheists say that it proves that there are contradictions in the supposedly inspired scriptures. There aren't. John 11, 9. John chapter 11 and verse 9. And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. Twelve hours, lighted hours in a day on average, and by since there are 24 hours in a complete day, then there are twelve hours during the night. Jesus' definition of a day was a full day and a full night. One or two hours or one or two minutes at the end of a day or the beginning of a day, does not constitute a day in the Bible. You cannot count three days and three nights from Friday sunset until the first day of the week. I mean, you can try it, but let's assume then that if there was a good Friday, that you have Jesus being um, put in the grave the last few minutes, the last few minutes of daylight on Friday, and we count that as a whole day. That's what they tried to do. Let's do that. That's one day. Then we've got one night. That's Friday night. Then we have all day Saturday. That's the another day. Then we have all day Saturday night. An all night Saturday night. That's another one. And let's say that Jesus was resurrected the first few seconds 
of Sunday when the sun comes up. He wasn't. His, his tomb was empty when they went there at night. But let's say that that's the case, that still you can't squeeze it out of there. You can't find it in that period of time. It's simply not there, no matter how you try to figure it. Some assert that when the sun was darkened on the sixth and the ninth hour, that constituted a whole day, but that was before Jesus died. He was on the cross then, not in the, in the, um, on the heart of the earth, as he said he would be in Matthew 12:40. I'd like to just briefly go through this, sort of as meet in due season. It's not a comprehensive explanation, but turn to Matthew 25, sorry, Matthew 27, 57 through 60. Matthew 27, 57 through 60. And let's just review this. We've got this right and others do not. Now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And the man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded that the body be given him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary um, sitting opposite the tomb. And turn over to 28 in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, that word in the Greek is plural. Plural. If you don't have that noted in your Bible, you should. It is after the Sabbaths. The reason why is there were two Sabbaths that week. And a lot of our friends in mainstream Christianity that reject the holy days don't understand about the seven annual holy days. It is a Sabbath of rest. Each one has a day of preparation, and it occurred during the week. There were two Sabbaths in that particular uh, week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. Luke 23, 50 through 56. Luke 23, 50 through 56. This is um, a parallel account. Verse 15, And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and just. And the same had not consented to the, deed, to the counsel and the deed of them. That was at the council. And he was of Arimathea, the city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went into Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and he took it, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, where where never a man before was laid. And that day was the preparation. And the Sabbath, that is a holy day. That is a holy day. Remember that Passover is also always a day of preparation, a preparation for the holy day to follow. 
and the holy day drew on nigh. Then the women also came from Galilee, followed after, and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested on the Sabbath day. That's the weekly Sabbath. You see, they got him in the grave. They hastened to get him in the grave and roll the stone very quickly, right at the end, because they were in a hurry to do it. They did not have time to go back into the city and to buy things. All the stores would have been closed, and certainly not to prepare all of those spices. That's because Passover was on a Wednesday that day. Thursday was the high holy day. Friday was the day after. That was the day of preparation for the Sabbath. That's when they bought the spices. And then Sabbath, they rested according to the, um, according to the law, as they should have done. And then they returned Sunday morning, as it says in Luke 24.1. The spices had to be bought and prepared on the weekday before the Sabbath, and that takes time. So we know then that Jesus was killed on Wednesday about the ninth hour, on 3, 3 p.m., or about 1,500 hours. He was buried at the sunset between Wednesday and Thursday, which was the first day of unleavened bread, the holy day, and the spices were then on Friday. They rested on the Sabbath. The true chronology is that Jesus was resurrected after spending exactly, exactly three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, just as he said, ending in the going down of the sun between Sabbath and Sunday, the first day of the week. He was in the garden Saturday or Sabbath night, Saturday night, the first day of the week that began that and was subsequently seen by Mary Magdalene and the others early Sunday morning. Mary went to the tomb while it was still dark and found that the grave was open. He had already been resurrected. He wouldn't let him touch him until after he had ascended to the Father at the time of the wave sheaf offering. And then after that time, he was held by them several times. There's a Bible. Nowhere in this Bible does it say that Jesus was resurrected on Sunday. It is not present. You can't find it anywhere. Not resurrected Sunday morning, as they say. It says that the resurrected Jesus was first seen on the first day of the week. Sunday is not the Lord's day. And it is not an excuse but doing away with one of God's commandments, as the world says it is. They are simply wrong about this, brethren, and we have God's truth in the matter. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1, and then verses 3 and 4. This is echoed throughout the New Testament. We'll just read a little bit. Moreover, brethren, I preach unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand. Verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all as part of the gospel. First of all, which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What scriptures? 
sign of Jonah, sign of Jonah, which he gave. The only sign that Jesus gave is denied by professing Christianity. But we know the truth that Jesus gave the sign of Jonah and is the Christ. If you'd like to read more details about this, a really nice technical analysis of it is with more detail is in the March-April Tomorrow's World of 2009, a great article by Rod McNair. March-April 2009, Tomorrow's World. Point number three. We're to take on the sign of Jonah and to be raised up as Christ was. How? How do we do this? Luke chapter 12, verse 50. Luke chapter 12 and verse 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus was going to be baptized again? By this time, he had already been baptized by John the Baptist. Did Jesus need to be rebaptized? Why is he saying this? He has a baptism to be baptized with. Mark chapter, or rather, Matthew chapter 20, Matthew 20, 22 and 23. Matthew chapter 20, 22 and 23. A couple of disciples come. They're asking for great favor, great offices in his kingdom. Verse 22. But Jesus answered and said, Do you not know what you ask? You do not know, rather, what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and to baptize with the baptism I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. You shall be baptized. Can you be baptized with the baptism that he was to baptize with? Christ was referring not only to physical baptism, but to death and resurrection, as in the sign of Jonah. Mark 10. Mark 10, 37 through 39. Mark chapter 10, verse 37 and 39. Talking more about this baptism. And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand, the other on your left, in your glory. And Jesus said, You know not what you ask. Can you um, drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And he said, we, they said, We can. And Jesus said to him, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink and, baptize, and, be, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. He was talking about their death and resurrection, but also, in their case, their martyrdom. 
We are to take on this sign ourselves. Turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Very familiar scripture. One that I always begin baptismal counseling with. Peter's just preached this tremendous sermon. They believed, they had faith in the gospel that they had heard preached. Now when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So Peter said unto them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism, that is by immersion. The word baptizo in Greek simply means to immerse, put something under the water. And we have almost did there. (laughs) We have to be put under the water, go all the way under, just as Christ was. Baptizo means to just put something and immerse it, and we are immersed in the water. We take that sign upon us. Baptism is included in Hebrews chapter 6, the basic doctrines. We'll turn there quickly, Hebrews chapter 6, where it says, Therefore, leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. It begins with repentance. It means if you've been breaking God's commandments, you stop and start keeping them. And faith towards God of the doctrine of baptisms and laying out of hands of resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. Baptism, laying out of hands, resurrection from the dead. Things that we have been talking about and reading about throughout this sermon. What we teach is this. The Bible tells us that we must come to Christ in true repentance. People don't like to do that. That's the big barrier. That's the hardest thing to do sometimes. The world does not want to repent. They don't want to keep God's law. They don't like his way of life. It is a rejection of God themselves, a refusal to repent. But happily, it is something that God grants to each of us. He makes it possible for us, his spirit working with each of us at those times. I like to tell you and remind people that their calling is a miracle. A miracle, because God led you to do that. You can explain all of these things to your neighbors, and what do they say? What? What? They don't understand. No idea what you're talking about. You can explain it to them in detail. No idea what you're saying. That's because their minds aren't being opened up, but yours was opened up. I want to remind you, when God brings you to repentance, it is a blessing It is a grant that he gives you, a blessing of repentance. And living a repentant life is a blessing, something we should pray for and ask for as a blessing from God. We come to Christ in true repentance. He enables us to do that. If we reason that we can break God's commandments and not sin, we are deceived, and the world 
The world reasons that. They are wrong. We can't repent of sin and break God's commandments at the same time. And if you think that you can, you are deceived. Repentance changes things. It's not just a feeling. That's remorse. But true repentance is something that you do now. It changes what you're doing now, and it changes what you're going to do in the future as well. If you've been taking God's name in vain your whole life, you're a cusser like a sailor, and you've been doing this your whole life, and you're so sorry you did it, when you repent, it changes what you're going to say in the future, doesn't it? Changes what you're going to say. Just like repenting of breaking all of God's commandments. Changes what you're going to do. Something it cannot change. What is that? Can't change what you did. Can't change what you said last year. Can't change the curses that, that you made. All of those things are the lies that you told or something that you stole or someone that you hated, something that you coveted, some idol, personal idol that you had. It can't change any of that. We are guilty for what we already did. You cannot unring a bell. Only one thing can remove the guilt of our past sins. What is it? The sacrifice of Christ and his shed blood. That removes the guilt of our past sins. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Brethren, grace does that. It is grace that does that. And all the repentance and commandment keeping that we can do in the future, the rest of our lives, can't remove the guilt of what we did We cannot earn the removal of that guilt of our past sins. The church has always taught that, has always taught that. If you'd like to read about it again, go back and see Mr. Armstrong's old booklet, What Do You Mean Salvation? He goes through it in detail. He goes through that in detail. Then after that, we live a repentant life of obeying and keeping God and keeping his commandments, which is Holy Spirit, which he gives us by the laying out of hands from one of God's true ministers, becomes indwelling in us. It makes it possible. This is the way he does it. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verses 8 through 10. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, although I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed unto repentance. They felt deep remorse for their way of life, as you did, no doubt. When you looked at yourself in the mirror of God's word, some of you very long ago, decades ago, some of you only recently, You looked in the mirror of God's word, and you did not like what you saw. You wanted to change. You sorrowed. You had remorse unto repentance. The remorse and the the feelings that you had were something that God blessed you with that led you to true repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow works repentance 
to salvation, not to be repented of, that the sorrow of the world works death. Your repentance led you to baptism, to be saved from the guilt of your past sins. And then you came up out of the watery grave in the type of Christ's resurrection, to a newness of life, to live a whole new way of life, to be led by God's Spirit the rest of your days, to kept holy and right before God. And then you will be resurrected or changed at the coming of our Lord to live forever in glory in his kingdom and family, saved from death. Turn to Peter, Second Peter 2. I, I've used this before in a sermon here, but it just fits here. It just fits. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. This is so illustrative. Well, at least I found it to be. After you have done this and you've been washed, your sins have been forgiven, you can't go back. You cannot go back. You must live a repentant life. And God's Spirit enables you to do that, leads you through all of your days. He is faithful to do that. This is a, a, a remarkable scripture here, at least it is to me. Let's read uh, some of it. Verse 19, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, the same is brought into bondage. For after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse for, with them than the beginning. But it is better for them to not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Here's verse 22. It happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is returned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. We'll leave the part about the dog alone, thank you. But let's talk about the sow that was washed. Now, some of you old-timers, particularly in this part of the country, have you ever seen an old-timey pigsty? The, the pigs live their whole lives there. It's not a very large area, and they eat and they mess and do everything there. And the, the soil there becomes a mire. And it smells really bad. It really smells bad. But the pigs love it. The pigs think it's great. And they roll around in it, and they just think it's the best thing there is. Well, here we have this picture of the good farmer. Now, he's washed this pig, and it returns to the mire. You see, it said returned. He doesn't, he's not a fool. He doesn't wash the pig in the mire. You wash one side, he turns over, he gets dirty again. No, the pig who was washed outside of the mire, he had to return to the mire. So we have this pig. He leads him out of the mire. That's a type of our repentance. That's a type of deleavening your house, so to speak. See? So he washes the pig. Now the pig's nice and clean, all clean and everything. What happens when he lets her go? Right back to the mire because she likes it. She likes it. And that's what Israel did. That's what ancient Israel did. Time and time again, they repented, maybe they were punished, and they said, oh, we're so sorry, but they didn't have the capacity. They didn't have God's spirit 
to lead them, to keep his commandments and keep his laws in a way of life as God's spirit leads his people to do. So listen, I like to add a little bit to this and extend it to give it a happy ending, okay? Let's say that the good farmer, he has the ability to give that old pig his view of the mire. He goes, boom, and all of a sudden the pig has his view of the mire and says, ooh, no, I used to roll around in that stuff. That's horrible. I never want to go back into that mire again. See? And then all that, the pig just stays away from the mire after that, just goes around the farm and only has to wash her feet from time to time, and she's clean every whit. Well, you see where I like that story? <laughs> we don't go back, brethren. We don't go back because God has given us something special that enables us to keep his law, to stay out of sin, to stay out of sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 through 11. This is the baptism chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death? That sound familiar? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Each of you that were baptized, and welcome to our new members. I'd like to... Um, meet you and get to know you better, those of you who were just baptized. But when you were baptized, you were put down into a watery grave in the likeness of Christ's death and raised up in the likeness of his resurrection, the sign of Jonah, but in the newness of life, anticipating what is going to happen when you will have the glory, the glory that God has for us when Christ comes again, to live forever in his kingdom and family. Verse 5. If we have been planted together in the likeness of death, we shall also be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Buried in his likeness, resurrected in his likeness. We must take on the sign of Jonah, just as Jesus did. So to summarize briefly, why was the sign of Jonah the only sign that Christ gave? It is the only sign he gave because Christ is the only way that we can live. We must do it also. He is the only way through his death and resurrection. Christ is the way, and he was showing us the way by his example. No sign of Jonah, no life. He is the only way, and that is the only way. Point number four, why did Jesus have to die? 
then? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, God is perfect. He's the very definition of rightness. And we live and move and have our being in him through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the eternal God, lived from eternity. And he lives now. He is an infinite life. All things were created by him. The purpose of mankind is to become part of this family, which Jesus, of which is the firstborn of many. We are to enter into the oneness of the family of God as full sons of God. We will be like Jesus when he comes, glorified. It's a glory that we have now waiting for us in heaven. It is your inheritance to have this glorified resurrection and changing this new body, resurrected as immortal sons of God. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. John chapter 17, verse 22. John chapter 17 and verse 22. Jesus was talking to his disciples. We will likely read this on the Passover night. And the glory which you gave them, gave me rather, the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. How, are the, how is a father and son one? I've got two sons, two daughters. You know, when they were growing up, they're all, they're all away now for the most part. But when they were growing up, we were one family. We were the Wakefields, one family. How is a father and son one? Rather than the oneness of God, that's the thing. And it's not a question of whether there is one God, it's just how. We understand it. The oneness of God is the oneness of a family that we can enter as full sons of God. That's his plan. That's what he has for us. That's what we're waiting for and living our lives for. 1 Corinthians 15, 44 through 49. 1 Corinthians 15, 44 through 49. And then 53 through 57. <clears throat> It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. How is your body sown in death and then resurrected? There's the sign of Jonah again. There it is again. And as it's written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last, Adam, a quickening spirit. That's Christ, Jesus Christ. Howbeit that which was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, afterwards that which is spiritual. And the first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As the as the earthy, as is the earthy, such are they that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall bear, shall bear the image of the heavenly. Verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, you don't have it yet. You don't have your immortality yet. You don't have your glory yet. It happens in the future. 
You do not have an immortal soul. And this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? We have this tremendous promise that a sinful, corrupt nature cannot be part of that divine family. It is simply not possible that that can happen. And we cannot, as a profaned, sinful person, enter the family of God, the God family. You can't do that. You can't do it even for one minute, and certainly not forever. All people have the guilt of their sins. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is not a figurative statement. That is a literal, literal statement. You cannot be resurrected to immortality if you are in your sins, because when you are resurrected to immortality, you enter the family of God, the holy mountain of God, and you cannot be a part of that if you are in your sins. We all have to be clean and reconciled to the Father, and Jesus made the way for us. Flesh and blood can't achieve that. God is holy, and we can't enter his divine family unless we are holy also. Nothing can profane, approach, nothing profane rather, can approach the Father, the family of God, and enter the God family. Unless we are cleansed of our sins and made holy by his Holy Spirit, we cannot be resurrected to immortality. Our Father has made it possible through Jesus Christ, our Lord, for us to be completely forgiven and reconciled with him. Through Christ, we are no longer accountable for the guilt of our past sins. Jesus made it possible for us to be justified and guiltless. Through him, we have redemption. How? How? This understanding is foundational and very important to the Passover. Revelation 13.8, we won't turn there, but it says that the Lamb of God, our Passover, was slain from the foundation of the world. God had this plan from the very beginning, from before there ever was a world, before there ever was a universe. God created this all for his people, you on whom the end, the outcomes of the world are here. He is waiting, the whole creation waits and groans for the birth of the sons of God. How important is this event? By his stripes and his broken body, we are healed. And by his shed blood, we are cleansed of our sins. Isaiah 59, verse 2 says that your iniquities have separated you from your God. Yes, they did. You are profaned by your sin separated and we have to stay out of sin that's the meaning of the days of unleavened bread we cannot go back like that sow that pig and become profaned again because if we do there's no more sacrifice from sin and if we sin we repent and god is faithful to forgive us why did jesus have to die why because it was the only way the sins of the world were laid upon a sinless, perfect, infinite being, and then he died. He died. The guilt of our sins was wiped out along with his life. 
He took it with him. He was sinless he, and holy. He could be resurrected to a glorified immortal body. He didn't need reconciling with the Father. To be resurrected to glory, we must be cleansed and reconciled, which Christ made possible when he took our sins upon him. 1 Corinthians 5, or rather 2 Corinthians 5, 15 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 15 through 21. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Sign of Jonah. There it is. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You're going out into the world, and each of you are helping this man over here, Dr. Meredith, and the other presenters plead to the world through the television media, through our magazines, through everything that we do. We are pleading for national and personal repentance to the world. And you are helping in that effort. Verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What was nailed to that stake on that cross? Not the commandments of God. You know, if you had been one of those people kind of standing far off and looking at what was going on, those terrible events, and you saw a man up there nailed to that thing with spikes, with the great weight of his body pulling down, gasping, trying to get a breath, beaten to a pulp, one end to the other, hardly recognizable, what would you have seen nailed there? A man was nailed to that stake, to that cross. You would not have seen any commandments. But one thing you would have known or should have known that also laid upon him was the sins of the whole world, including your own, laid upon him. I've often wondered what the weight of his body must have seemed like hanging on spikes against flesh. I understand that forensic archaeologists say that they believe that they drove a spike through the heel bone of a man. Incredible for his feet. Incredibly painful. So that he could push up and get a breath and live longer. He had not only the weight of his body He had the weight of our sins upon him. The whole world imagined the psychological weight that hung on that man 
at that time. The sins of the world will wait upon him. Our sins were laid on the Passover lamb of God, and our sins are passed over through his death. When he died, he made it possible for those who accept that sacrifice to have their guilt removed as far as the east is from the west. We have a remembrance of that every year as we take the Passover. Men and brethren, what shall we do? We repent and we are baptized. For what? The remission of sins. We are baptized for the remission of our sins. Every time I counsel someone for baptism, I always ask that question, question, why do you want to be baptized? And I get a lot of good answers. Well, I want to have God's spirit. I want to be in the kingdom of God. I want to enter the church. A lot of different things. But what they have to remember and be reminded of, the purpose for baptism is the remission of sins. You're taking upon yourself the sign of Jonah. You go down in the watery grave in the likeness of his death, and you come up in the likeness of his life, his resurrection, in a newness of life, in the newness of life. And then we are given the Holy Spirit that enables us to live his life the rest of our days. We will also do the foot washing on Passover evening, and we do two things, Matt. First, we have our feet washed, which is a reminder of our baptism. And we remember then that we are clean every whit. And second, we wash other people's feet. We take on the humility of Christ. Before you do the foot washing, if you'd like to look at a Living Church News article, March, April of 2013, there's a good review of the meaning of the foot washing. We emulate Jesus' death by baptism. We are buried in his likeness. Jesus pictured his death, burial, and resurrection in the same manner that we do with the sign of Jonah in that watery grave. Jonah had to be underwater three days and three nights. It was a prophecy and an actual event in history. It could only have happened the way it happened. God was in control. Yahweh, who became flesh, literally came to earth as a man, set the whole thing up, set the whole thing up. Jonah is the only sign that Jesus would give. He did other miracles, um, and others did miracles, but that was the only sign for that reason. Jonah's adventure, a death and resurrection in type, saved his shipmates, and he went on to warn Nineveh, which repented. The world in this evil age, which is ruled by the God of this world, has been called to repentance but won't do it. We have to stay holy and separate. We may be in it, but we can't be of it. We have to be called out and keep ourselves unleavened all of our lives, unleavened by sin. But God says the world will repent after its near destruction and the binding of the God of this world. We understand that God's divine law expresses God's holy, righteous character. But because of that law, which is holy and just and good, we, as human beings, have transgression. And because we have sin, we have guilt. But we don't have to live with that old destructive guilt. Guilt is corrosive. It's corrosive. 
in a person's mind and their psychology, but we don't have to live with it. Jesus makes possible faith and repentance. The sign of Jonah, which is baptism that we partake, wherein we are dead to our sins and a new life and redemption. You are forgiven, washed, clean. You're not only allowed to believe that you are free from the guilt of your past sins, you're required to believe it. It's something you need to know. He didn't do all of that for no reason, brethren. Let's believe that and take it to heart and know that we are washed and clean every whit by the blood of this precious sacrifice. This is redemption through Jesus Christ. No eternal life without it. And finally, then, we have the resurrection to glory in the immortal family of God, a perfect plan of salvation. We have Passover and unleavened bread, which is God's people made innocent. We have Pentecost, which is God's people made holy. And then we have trumpets in the fall holy days. God's people glorify three times a year. He teaches us this so that we don't forget. God said that he tells the ends from the beginning. Jonah's adventure occurred because of what Jesus would do later, not the other way around. It is a prophecy that each of us has something in common with Jonah. We must do what Jesus did, the sign of Jonah, for our redemption, in his likeness into the watery grave, and rise up out in the likeness of his resurrection, awaiting in a newness of life our ultimate resurrection to immortality and bodies like his. So maybe now when you read the Bible and you look at these things, you'll see the sign of Jonah popping up. It's referenced, it's pictured in lots of places throughout the Bible. Let's turn to Galatians 2.20, and perhaps after all this, we can see better why this is Dr. Meredith's favorite scripture. I wonder if the sign of Jonah is somewhere in this scripture, too. Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 